Okay, great. Hi, everybody. I'm Mira Salva. I'm director of the Journalism Fellowship Programme at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford. This is a seminar that we have run every Wednesday afternoon for years and years and years. Traditionally, it's been in Oxford where we invite speakers, senior editors, journalists to come and speak about the business and practice of journalism to our journalist fellows who are mid-career journalists from around the world to come to Oxford for, for the fellowship and also to the wider public. The wider public in most cases has been whoever can get to Oxford. One, one very kind of small silver lining of this kind of strange period is that the wider public can now mean everybody all around the world. So really delighted that you all took the time to come and log into this seminar today. Our speaker today is Prashant Rao, um, international editor of The Atlantic. I asked Prashant to come and speak uh, before we all went into lockdown, before we knew this was coming, because The Atlantic had already been, to, to my mind, one of the best global brands. It had grown and it had captured a kind of an audience that wanted to you know, read good journalism, but engage in a debate without seemingly over, overly partisan. And I was always struck by the tone and the content. And so I'm very glad to have got Prashant to come um, and speak. Prashant himself has a has kind of long storied career with various brands, the New York Times and um, AFP. And since he's joined at the Atlantic, I think you've really seen that the magazine has found its voice in foreign affairs. So um, with, with I'm just going to pass over to Prashant. In terms of the kind of logistics and housekeeping rules, everything that's said today will be on the record. I will, if you have questions, please use the chat function and raise your hands and I will try, I will kind of raise them at, at the end of the presentation. The journalist fellows in the room, are your mix are, are kind of, you're unmuted, mute yourself if you've got cats and children in the background, but if not, the idea is to kind of make sure that we're aware of your presence as well. Thanks very much, Prashant. Thanks, Mira. Um, so um, yeah, here we, uh, let's get started. Um, I'm Prashant, I'm based in London. I'm gonna talk to you about uh, what we've done so far at The Atlantic uh, in my year and a half here. Um, a little bit about me, and then we'll get into the history of The Atlantic and a few other more interesting things. Um, as I said, I live in London. I've been here about, for about four and a bit years now, uh, now with The Atlantic, uh, before that with The New York Times. Um, in a previous stint, I was at university in London, and then I worked at Bloomberg News and at AFP. Um, AFP uh, meant that I went to a number of different places. I was in Iraq for a few years, where I was the Baghdad bureau chief. Um, I reported from a bunch of different countries, and then I lived uh, in Hong Kong for AFP for a year and a bit as well. Um, so uh, let's get into the stuff that you really want to hear. Uh, so I don't want to assume you know the Atlantic inside out. So I'll walk you through a little bit of our history, our values, what it is that we do and why we do it. Uh, before we get into the kind of nitty-gritty that um, we can talk more about. So, as this slide says, um, you know, we were founded in 1857 by a group of abolitionists, and, you know, you can read that range of writers. That's some of our early writers. It's a fairly remarkable range, and if you look today as well, um, there's really quite a number of incredible writers uh, who people uh, come to read beyond just wanting to read The Atlantic. Um, and, uh, you know, we were based in Boston for most of our history, but about 15 years ago, we moved our headquarters to Washington, D.C. Um, and as I'll get into a little bit later on, we now have offices in a number of different places. Uh, let's move on then to our mission and our values. I think 
one of the things about the Atlantic in particular, uh, and I think this is true of quite a number of news organizations, but we are very um, uh, um, we think about this a lot is what I want to say. Um, it's important to say that we are really values and mission driven. What does that mean? We believe we exist for a purpose beyond simply gaining readers or making money. But both of those things are obviously incredibly important in journalism, but uh, we genuinely believe we have to serve a greater purpose beyond that. So what is that purpose? Uh, we believe that the Atlantic serves something of a moral purpose. Uh, as I said, we were founded by abolitionists and as we did then, we aim to now represent ideals of freedom, progress and honor. We of course want to be entertaining and we want to be a writer's magazine. So what does that mean? It means that there is no house style or house view at the Atlantic. We're trying to be a place where smart and talented writers are allowed to breathe, to be themselves, uh, to write really passionately and to make forceful and thoughtful arguments, to sway readers, to challenge them, to uh, go deeper, to offer a level of nuance. And then also, as we did then, uh, so we do now, we reject the notion of belonging to what we call any party or clique. We are not loyal to one side or the other. We are not uh, seeking to further a particular argument. We are simply seeking out the best arguments and the best journalism. And finally, uh, we want to propagate what our founders called the American idea. Now, what does that mean? Um, it's a little uh, indeterminate, uh, indetermined. Uh, our founders never clearly detailed what it was, but you know, by looking at what we articulate as our values and our purpose, you can kind of see how we believe this idea informs us today. So now, uh, let's get on to what the Atlantic is today. So as I said, um, our headquarters are now in Washington, DC, but we also have these offices and writers and editors in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Uh, I, I'm in London with some other colleagues. Uh, we have people in Paris and Hong Kong, and in an ideal world, depending on how this pandemic shakes out, uh, we want to be more ambitious than that. Um, all told, we have about 150 odd newsroom staff worldwide, plus contracting contributing writers and editors. That will include people who do all manner of things from production, newsletters, audience engagement, um, a number of different things, as well as, of course, writers, editors, uh, art teams, designers, all of this kind of thing. Um, and then in terms of coverage areas, you can see there as well, we do try and cover the entire, the whole gamut of issues from politics and international affairs, which is, you know, my core interest to culture, family, and the topics that we, I suspect all of us care about the most today are science, technology, and health. Now, in an average month, um, for a good long while, we were sort of seeing about 75 million page views on theatlantic.com. Um, of course, the coronavirus uh, coverage and interest in the coronavirus has seen that increase fairly dramatically. I think um, the Reuters Institute put out a tweet earlier today, um, and it's you know numbers that we've made public. Uh, in March, our overall page view number rose to 168 million, so more than double that average. Um, we're also incredibly grateful that people pay for our journalism. So all in all, we have nearly half a million subscribers. Uh, and counting, including 36,000 who signed up just in March. Uh, this is where I should tell you a subscription is only 50 bucks a year. So if you can afford it, that would be great. Please do um, <laughs> to, uh, to the business of this. Um, we're also doing more and more stuff, right? So I think like, uh, I think back to a um, something Dean Baquet said when I was in the New York Times at one of our town halls, he said, if you had to pick between, um, if you could be a journalist in the 1990s or a journalist today, 
uh, he said he would pick today any day of the week. And that was because, you know, the number of ways the New York Times can reach readers and tell stories is so much more. Um, it's so much more vast. And I think that's true for us too. You know, we can tell stories through video. We can tell through stories through art. It's not simply the written word, though, of course, that is, of course, what we are best known for. Uh, we make documentaries now. We have podcasts. So we already had a couple of great podcasts. The Ticket, which is focused on politics and Crazy Genius, which is about how technology influences our lives. But we also recently released an episodic feature podcast called Floodlines about the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. And then, um, you know, amid all this coronavirus uh, news, we also spun up a regular podcast on this topic called Social Distance. Um, and then, like the Reuters Institute, of course, we have events, and all of our events have gone online. Um, so there is this multi-platform kind of um, opportunity is something I think more and more news organizations um, are considering, leveraging, working on. Now, uh, with sort of thinking about all that, how do we get into this, uh, the core topic that we want to talk about today about going abroad? Um, and, you know, one of the things is this is a very American news organization. So it's important first to say that the Atlantic has always done quality international reporting. Um, but typically it did not base its staff overseas to cover international issues from abroad. So a few examples of some of the international stories we've done that you may have read. If you haven't, obviously, uh, you know, that's fine, but I would encourage you to read these because I, I do think they're excellent uh, pieces of journalism. One uh, is the Obama Doctrine, which is a, a piece uh, that looks at, it, it attempts to be the piece that characterizes what it is that defines Barack Obama's foreign policy. There's an excellent piece, I think in 2011 or 2012, which was a profile of the King of Jordan. Um, and you'll notice that both of those were written by our editor-in-chief, so I don't want to appear too sycophantic. Um, the other piece that I would highly recommend, which is my favorite Atlantic piece, was written in 2006. It's called Double Blind, and it's about how the British Army infiltrated the IRA um, during the Troubles. It is incredibly good. Um, and then I also want to say a couple of things before we get into this. Um, we, our global team, which is a team I lead, um, had been based in Washington, focusing on the world, but it largely looked at it through a US foreign policy lens. Um, those folks are still there. They're now called the national security team and we work side by side. Um, but this is something that we're trying, you know, what we're trying to do now is a little bit more ambitious than that. And then also, of course, you know, this is true at every news organization, but we have to acknowledge that all of our sections write about stories that are in their own way, intrinsically international. If you're in the US or the UK, you know, if you're writing about Facebook's data privacy practices, that isn't an American story, that's an, a global story. If we look at how Netflix's incredible expansion into our lives, that, that affects all of us, depending on where we are. Um, but those pieces, you know, would have been written by the tech section or the culture section, but they are trying to reach an international audience. And then, of course, you know, I, I won't go on about this too long, but uh, we have to also acknowledge that a major reason readers come to us is because we are very good on American politics. Uh, this is still a crucial issue for us, um, and not simply because a lot of our readers are American, but because, you know, foreign readers who want to understand the Trump presidency, but also American political history, uh, they want that concentration. Uh, so we cannot, you know, dilute that uh, in an attempt to simply go international. And remember, that goes back to the idea that we are a mission-driven organization. We're trying to, you know, cover politics in this way. Okay, so, you know, after all that preamble, uh, when we do go abroad, what do we focus on? One of the things we thought a lot about when we were doing this was we are not anybody's first read. Um, you know, I, for example, I read the New York Times and the Financial Times every day. Um, I get my news from them. I find out what happened in the world in the past 24 hours from them. 
Um, and so if we try to compete with the New York Times, the Financial Times, we will lose. Uh, they have um, a completely different journalistic apparatus to us. Um, and so we have to think very sort of in a very considered way about what it is we do that the New York Times does not do. And we cannot just be longer versions of New York Times stories, uh, mostly because most long stories are too long. Uh, anyway, uh, I, you know, the other thing is like, if we can cover anything and everything, which is somewhat intrinsically true, that, kind of, that then means we have to think deeply about what it is we focus on because we could risk becoming scattershot and how we kind of cover, oh, this is just interesting. That's not a coverage plan. That's um, something of an ideal. Um, anyway, as a mission-driven organization, uh, I keep repeating this, but it is important to who we are. Um, our priorities are to focus on the future of liberal democracy and the what appears to be the apparent rise as well of populism, nationalism, and authoritarianism. You will see that these also speak to our founding values in a very uh, elemental way. And then in terms of geographies, unsurprisingly, given these uh, these interests, we are particularly interested in China's impact, China and China's impact on the world around it more than any single country, um, with the notable exception of Britain in that we have a staff presence here. And so we will, of course, cover this country uh, more than we will most others. So that's high-minded. Now let's look at how we put those priorities into reality. As I said, we need to think about what makes an Atlantic story. Um, if the New York Times or Reuters or uh, the FT or the Guardian could do it, we shouldn't they'll be faster than us and we will miss an opportunity. Um, and as I said, we shouldn't just do longer stories for the sake of it. Readers have limited time. Um, you know, as we often think, we're not competing with just the New Yorker. We're not competing with just Wired. We're not competing with just Esquire. Um, we're competing with Netflix. We're competing with Candy Crush. We're competing with a number of different um, uh, organizations that are vying for our readers' attention on their cell phones, on their iPads, on their computers. Um, and so we have to be genuinely thoughtful about what it is we are trying to do. So we have very deliberate uh, discussions when we are talking about stories about how can this story enrich debate? How can it make a provocative or a bold argument? How can we connect dots that readers have not yet seen before? How can we examine human behavior? Um, how can we spark curiosity? Um, and so as a result, you know, we're not, we're not trying to do iterative news. We're not trying to do short-term updates. Uh, that's just not why people come to the Atlantic. These are a few examples of this from, you know, the past few months. Uh, the first one by Yasmin is trying to make an argument. It's not trying to say, oh, there are two sides to this. She is saying that the EU is standing by as Hungary is, you know, harming democracy. Um, Tim's story from Hong Kong is looking at, you know, trying to connect a couple different uh, threats, this idea of Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests and the coronavirus. There are, there are a lot of intrinsic complaints um, to those two things that Hong Kongers, um, uh, that provokes ire among Hong Kongers. And then Emily's story from this German border town uh, was really thoughtful in looking at, you know, that these far-right complaints don't just come out of nowhere. We have to look deeper. We have to get to um, a level of nuance that we haven't thought about so far. We're also, you know, Kate and I were talking about this just briefly before everybody came in. Um, you know, when you're on the wires, I was on the wires for 10 years, we, you don't really have a great understanding of who your readers are. Our stories kind of go into the ether, we hope for the best. And then, you know, with Twitter, we kind of get a sense of what people are thinking, but really we, we don't have a feel for what readers respond to. Um, 
Now, I don't want to say that, you know, we want, oh, as many readers as possible, so everything has to be clickbaity, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge uh, journalism organizations need readers. We need people to read our stuff, to watch our stuff, to listen to our stuff, and so we need to better understand them. Uh, so the Atlantic's done a good amount of research into this. Um, you know, what we found is that our readers, particularly for the Atlantic, right, this different news organizations have different sets of readers, and we should be honest about that. Um, we're very lucky. Uh, and we're very grateful to our readers in that they really want to sharpen their understanding. They are not coming to the Atlantic just to have their biases confirmed. They want to be challenged. They want to better understand why things are happening in the world around them, both uh, from a kind of ephemeral sense with technology and health and science, but also from a political sense. Now let's go into maybe a, something of a deeper case study. And I thought, you know, let's not talk about coronavirus. Let's talk about something different, uh, and the only thing left is Brexit, unfortunately. Uh, so this feels like something of a different era, but um, how do we translate these priorities and values into actual coverage? So our editor, Jeff, um, told me once that uh, in a different era, if, you know, um, the Mueller hearings had been happening in the United States, the Atlantic's response would have been, here's a long read about the history of horticulture. Uh, it was reflexively trying to offer something that was timeless. Um, and now we wanna try and sort of combine those two instincts to be, you know, look at long running themes, look at, provide historical context, tell readers what has changed. And, you know, without being glib, uh, we wanna try and combine some measure of timeliness with an element of timelessness. Our stories need to be able to be read a week from now, ideally a, a month from now. You know, in the best case scenario, as I told you, the story I would highly recommend you read is 14 years old. I just think it's gripping and amazing. Um, now, not every story you know, reaches that mark, but that is certainly the ambition. So we think by combining these three things, you know, looking at themes, long running themes, providing historical context, and then you know, telling readers what has changed, we can provide Atlantic readers with the kind of context and the depth and the nuance that they demand of us. So here's some examples of how that plays out. Um, the first piece uh, is by Henry Newman, who was then the director of Open Europe, which was a, a center-right pro-Brexit think tank. Um, and it sort of got at this notion that, you know, from abroad, Brexit is often painted as, you know, Britain doing this historically stupid thing and leaving the EU impetuous, uh, you know, of the moment, all of this kind of thing. But he kind of tried to make this point that we're not seeking to understand the good faith argument for doing so. Uh, so Henry wrote this piece for us that gets about how, you know, Britain has long been nonplussed about the EU and, is all, and the EU has always kind of loved Britain more than the, Britain has loved the EU. Um, and it's a really thoughtful piece. I would, I would, of course, I would recommend it. Um, and the second piece by Helen, um, you know, I, I forgive you if you weren't following all of the sort of day-to-day uh, -day nuances of Brexit. Most people shouldn't. Um, but there were a number of deadlines um, that Britain was supposed to leave the EU by. And one of these deadlines, as it was approaching, you know, Helen and I got talking about uh, some of our frustrations with iterative and um, sort of horse race coverage of this enormous political change. And she wrote this very thoughtful, nuanced, um, strong critique of the British press's coverage of, her, of Brexit. And she made a really interesting comparison uh, between how the British press covered the run-up to the Iraq war and Brexit and what that meant, what we had learned. And that level of nuance I thought was really worthwhile. And then the actual deadline when Britain was to leave the EU was January 31st. 
So we had this story on the eve of Brexit Day where Tom, uh, one, another one of our staff writers along with Helen, really stepped back and he, you know, he basically started the piece in the 1960s and sought to chart why it was that Britain left. Not why did the referendum go this way or that, or why, did, why was the withdrawal agreement like this, but he's really trying to answer a more elemental question. Why, you know, and that's what the headline is, why Britain Brexited. Uh, so this piece in particular, I think, tries to get at this idea of like timeliness and timelessness. We knew there would be a lot of attention focused on Brexit because January 31st was Brexit day. So of course, like every news organization, we prep stories in advance that we think will you know, beat up the moment. Um, but at the same time, you could read, I think, that piece today. And I think it holds up incredibly well as a good, thoughtful, not hugely long piece that tries to chart in a, in a historically minded way what it is that made Britain leave and how did it happen. So what do we think we learned from our experience of covering Brexit? One, we should stick to what we're good at. Um, we think that's offering context, depth, and nuance to our readers. Um, at the same time, we have to be confident on what we're not gonna cover, what we're gonna pass on. Um, one of the things here is because we are not a day-to-day -day news organization like the New York Times, like AFP, uh, we have to understand what we are not going to cover. Otherwise, we will just start to become scattershot. Um, some stories just aren't big enough or interesting enough for us, and we shouldn't feel guilty about not covering them. Um, if you combine these two things, a former editor of ours once said that the Atlantic's role was to provide what he called a useful degree of complexity into people's lives. Um, and then finally, you know, as I said in the last example, uh, we have to try and dictate our own news cycle without sacrificing timeliness. So that combination of timeliness and timelessness. So if we get away from Brexit and into kind of one-off stories, how can we uh, sort of think about this? This is a story we ran in July. Uh, Michael Weiss, um, who uh, covers a lot of security and intelligence uh, topics, uh, traveled to Estonia to interview a, uh, an Estonian soldier who had been for a decade spying for Russia. Um, so, you know, we gave him the time, uh, we gave him resources, uh, and we also sent one of our video producers to record the interview. So there's a really interesting sort of short video documentary that uh, accompanies this. Uh, and I think this is the kind of piece that we, um, we often don't have the time for, but this is the kind of thing we really enjoy doing because, you know, Michael had time to report it, time to research it. He submitted it and it took, you know, months to edit it, uh, further several weeks to fact check it. Um, our fact checkers, again, this is one of the things where we're incredibly grateful to our subscribers. It sounds like I'm harping on this, but this is the kind of thing that makes the economics work. Um, we had fact checkers who listened to two days of interviews to make sure every quote in that story was accurate and placed in the proper context. Um, and, you know, we had a graphics team that was able to produce some really fun art for this piece that accompanied the documentary. And what came through was a really well-rounded, I thought, uh, gripping kind of spy thriller along with this short video documentary. And that gets as well as one of the things I said earlier, this idea that, you know, just writing words on a page uh, is good, but there are other opportunities to tell stories and other ways to tell stories that are fascinating, engage readers, offer something to readers and subscribers and people who want to, you know, interact with the Atlantic a, a step further. And this is a piece that Tom did, uh, we published in December. Um, again, uh, similar to the last piece, um, I think he sent his first draft to me in, I want to say, kind of early July. Uh, and it took several months of more reporting, more editing, fact checking. Um, but 
the whole point was we wanted to do an ambitious um, retelling of the aftermath of the poisoning of Sergei Skripal, who was uh, um, a, a double agent who was poisoned in Salisbury um, in Wiltshire in uh, 2018. Now, with this, again, we wanted to offer depth, nuance, and we, we told, I thought, a great story, but we wanted to go a step further and offer something bigger, right, connecting dots. And so the, the elemental argument in this was that this, you know, the aftermath of the scribble poisoning really illustrates how poorly equipped certain Western countries are, Britain included, at dealing with disinformation, uh, at dealing with this imbalance in the strategic architecture. And this came out one of the reasons, again, timeliness and timelessness, um, we published this on the day the NATO summit began in London, where we thought there would be interest in a Russia story of this magnitude. And then finally, uh, this piece, which I, I'm very grateful, the Reuters Institute um, sort of tweeted this out this morning in their thread, um, early and actually throughout the coronavirus, we of course see our role as, you know, writing news um, because our science, health and technology teams are incredibly strong. Uh, but also kind of taking big swings at thoughtful, provocative arguments um, that shape how we discuss the pandemic, that offer, you know, one of the things we often talk about is trying to offer readers the language by which to understand what is happening around them. Uh, and Helen, uh, who um, also, if you're, if you like Helen Lewis, she's doing a great talk uh, later today at the Aspen Institute Online. I would highly recommend sort of tuning in for that because she is really a brilliant writer uh, and speaker. Uh, she sort of came in and thought about this and looked at how, yes, the, the data then showed and continues to show that more men are dying of the coronavirus, but that doesn't mean that, you know, of course that is tragic, but there are other impacts that are being had that we should think about. Um, and one of them is that th this will be a setback for feminism and women's rights around the world. Um, and we thought this, you know, and this continues to be well read by, um, by readers now, uh, even though this was published, as you can see, six weeks ago. Um, because it had an element of timelessness to it. This is still something that people are thinking about. This is still forward thinking. <clears throat> now I'm nearing the end, so uh, I'm sorry for <laughs> going on for so long. But um, so now where do we go from here? Um, we have to, we think, maintain our values and our priorities because they've brought us this far. They define who we are as a news organization. If we were to step away from them, I think we would be doing a disservice to our readers and subscribers who we want to we want them to understand who we are and you know, feel invested in us. Um, and then of course we want to at the same time experiment with new story formats, new ways to tell stories, new ways to engage with our readers, with our subscribers, with potential people who have not yet interacted with The Atlantic. Um, and of course in, in that process, we wanna seek out new readers, uh, develop new audiences. Um, as I said, this is not, um, I don't think it's wrong to say, you know, we want to be read by more people. Uh, we want more subscribers, um, and we are hopeful that we will do that as a result. Uh, and I'm going to jump off to one quick tangent. Um, I uh, have been a staff staffer for 15 years uh, at news organizations at Bloomberg, at AFP, at the New York Times, the Atlantic. Uh, and this is, as you will all fully understand, a really crappy time to be a freelance journalist. Um, so uh, I have previously raised money for the Rory Peck Trust, which is a British-UK charity that provides, as it says in the bottom, uh, financial support to freelance journalists and their families, emergency grants. Um, if you could share this, that'd be awesome. If not, I totally understand. Um, but anyway, moving on to the most interesting bit, questions. And then also if you know you don't get your question, this is how you can contact me. My DMs are open, so just drop me a note. I'd be happy to sort of keep the conversation going. Thanks so much, Prashant. That was um, magisterial in, in its overview. <laughs> and it's very striking about Helen Lewis's piece on feminism. Um, 
and the coronavirus. I read it at the start of the pandemic and I think about it pretty much every day because it becomes more and more relevant as time goes on, which is, so it's not just timely, you know, people come to the idea as, as they live through the experience. Um, I have several questions. I, I just wanted to start with one about the origins. You talk about the part of the mission is to propagate the American idea, which is really interesting. And it's interesting that you say that openly. How, how have you managed to do that? Do you still feel that's part of a, its mission? And how have you managed to do that? And what is the American idea in your mind? So I think, you know, to answer your last question first, um, I think the American idea, again, it is diffuse, and that is something that we you know, talk about a lot um, in, our, in the office when you know, we get a step away from the news cycle and stuff. Um, it, it is, it's, it's ephemeral to some degree, the idea that um, some measure of freedom and progress is, is worthwhile in human society. We have to be sort of on the side of freedom, on the side of progress, and on the side of, of valor and honor. Um, and so as a result, I think that's what leads us to how we want to prioritize liberal democracy as our coverage priority um, around the world. We, you know, I, I don't think we make any bones about the fact um, we're not, you know, as a magazine, we are not trying to say, oh, hey, all forms of political systems are great. Um, we're fairly honest about the fact that, you know, we, we want to see liberal democracies and we believe that covering how that notion and that idea is changing. One of the things about the Atlantic is we believe, you know, we were founded as a magazine of ideas and we believe a central idea is the idea of liberal democracy and how is that changing is I think interesting to us. Uh, to your point about the American idea, I think that is, you know, articulating as such, uh, I, you know, I think you have a point that there is something of a tension there when we're trying to go international, of course, but at the same time, I think I come back to the notion of one of the reasons I think the Atlantic succeeds is because we stay true to our values. Um, we have a long tradition that I think is worth hanging on to. Uh, and so, you know, that was how they articulated it. So, you know, trying to massage that, I, it, it's hard. It, it's not uh, easy, but um, at the same time, I think there's value to just being honest about the fact that this is how our founders articulated it. This is how we are going to articulate it and perhaps we'll reinterpret it as time goes on. But that is still, I think, the worthwhile language to, uh, to talk about it. Okay, I'm related to that question is one from Ted Sullivan, which is saying, um, considering the Atlantic was started by abolitionists, has it ever campaigned for anything since then, any kind of political change or policy change? And what attitude does it take towards campaigning journalism? So this is, yeah, uh, it's a complicated one. Um, the Atlantic, uh, you know, most recently uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton at the last presidential election, but we do not typically endorse um, presidential candidates. Um, we hadn't for, I forget how many presidential elections before, but um, you know, our, editor, our editor, Jeff Goldberg, uh, thought this was um, such an incredible sort of difference that the Atlantic had to come out and say what it stood for in this moment. Um, I think, sorry, I think in keeping with a lot of sort of mainstream American journalism, we're not a campaigning organization. We don't campaign for things. And that gets back to this idea of we are not of any party or clique. Um, we are seeking out the best arguments, the most, um, the best journalism, the best stories. Um, and so there may be things that our writers voice support for, but as an organization overall, that tends not to be how we operate. We tend to give our writers the freedom to make these arguments um, and let, let the writers uh, stand on their own. And the idea again is that, you know, oh, nobody goes back and says, well, the Atlantic used to support this and the Atlantic used to support that. For us, really, the writers are the stars. 
um, you know, I happen to be an editor and I work with several writers, but my entire goal is to make sure that the writers are front and center, that we are marketing them, that they are, you know, the ones who uh, we want to succeed. And do you find the readers understand that? They understand that if you publish something, <laughs> that it's the writer's viewpoint, not your own. That's, uh, that's always the difficult question is how much do readers understand about our processes and all these kinds of things. But I think there are ways that we can try and do that. Um, whether we succeed or fail, I think is, you know, um, onto us, of course. But one of the things we do try and use is say, we, we are very comfortable with using the first person, for example. So writers will often say, I think this, I saw this, this person told me, um, and the language we use here in Paris, I have seen. We're trying to make the writer the star of the writing as well as, um, as well as make clear to the, uh, to the reader that the Atlantic is a place for all kinds of views. And I think as readers interact more with the Atlantic, they get comfortable with this in that, yeah, I think with a lot of news organizations, uh, a huge number of readers are one-time readers. They'll read once a month and then they'll move on because they're getting their stories through Facebook or Twitter or Google search or Google news. Um, but we think as people interact with the Atlantic more, they get comfortable with who we are as a news organization, what are our values? And our values are for, about a plurality of views, about, you know, about housing arguments between people who disagree. Okay, thank you. We've got some questions from our journalist fellows um, from Daniela in Brazil. Um, could you share some practical examples of how you're working in different story formats and what's worked and what hasn't worked with story formats? And again, I have a question linked to that, which is if you are a writer's paper, how do you convey this to writers? Do they come to you with the format idea? Or do you go back to them and say, this would be better as a podcast? Um, yeah, so there's, uh, in terms of different story formats that work and don't work, we, we, we're always, I think, trying to experiment with this. Um, so among the things we try, for example, is we'll try bulleted lists and stories. So even at how we write, we try and experiment. Sometimes we'll have subheads. Um, so break up a story with like, oh, here are four things you may not have noticed about this, or how is this affecting these kinds of lives? Here are three things. So kind of um, listing uh, how this is happening. We sometimes try here's how this story is playing out by the numbers. I mean, this is stuff we have experimented with and found that it doesn't really sort of hit with readers the same way. Um, the stuff that work, seems to work very well is still narrative uh, journalism that is kind of traditional storytelling. That being said, there are a few things that we have tried to do more of, right? So um, I think this is happening at a lot of different news organizations. More and more readers are reading on mobile. Um, and at a lot of news organizations, the majority of readers are reading on mobile. On mobile. So that necessarily has to, you have to rethink to some degree how you write your lead in that situation. If you are an organization that writes an eight sentence lead uh, because you are a, you know, a long form organization and yet um, most of your readers are reading it on mobile and the first thing they log on to is a huge block of text. Um, what is that doing to how that reader interacts with the story and then with you as a news organization in the long term? Um, that is just one of the ways in which we try to think about story and writing formats differently. Um, I think, you know, when we think about uh, story formats, uh, sorry, different ways of storytelling, I think podcasts is an interesting one um, because, you know, everyone has podcasts. And so the difficulty is in this kind, of, and I think one of the things that um, certainly, look, I love podcasts. I listen to a ton of podcasts. Um, but one of the things that I, I have found difficult, and I think a lot of people in the podcast community acknowledge is it's really hard to discover new podcasts. It's really hard to figure out what it is you like to find new ones. It's very kind of uh, haphazard. And so you then have to spend a fair amount of time being kind of considered about what kind of podcasts do you do? 
why is the Atlantic's podcast and how is it different from, again, the New York Times podcast or the Guardian's podcast? So when I first joined the Atlantic, you know, I briefly talked to the podcasting about, oh, it'd be cool to have an international podcast, um, talk about international news. And we had some quick conversations about it, but they were, you know, they were right in that the Atlantic is known for feature journalism, for law, for narrative, uh, factual reporting. Not, you know, we're not trying to be two people talking on a podcast about the latest in international news and summarize it and just sort of give their views. And that's what, you know, that's why I would highly encourage people to try out Floodlines. You know, I don't want this to turn into like a promo for the Atlantic, but, um, you know, Floodlines is an episodic feature podcast of the, of like Serial, S-Town, those kinds of things. That is, you know, when you ask yourself, what should the Atlantic sound like? Floodlines is as close to the answer as we can reasonably expect. So that's one of the ways in which we think about storytelling in a really deliberate way. I think that one has worked. Uh, I think some of, you know, the writing experiments that I've tried in terms of asking writers to write in this kind of list of, listicle kind of format, that hasn't really popped. It hasn't really worked as well. Um, and then, uh, sorry, I forgot your second question. Um, yeah, it was, you kind of touched on how, if, if you're a writer's paper, how have you, how have you suggested, you know, what's the process of getting the different formats of writers? Do they come to you or do you go to, back to them? Yeah, so it, it is, uh, I think different news organizations do this differently, but um, certainly at The Atlantic, um, I am talking to my writers and I, you know, I edit about half a dozen writers consistently and then a whole bunch of other freelancers. I, I you know, with the consistent writers, I talk to them at least once a week on the phone, usually more often, uh, where we're spitballing ideas, where we're talking about how the reporting projects are going. And depending on how a reporting project is going, we'll talk about, oh, hey, you know, you should structure this story this way. Uh, I think that will work well. I think, you know, when people want to read The Atlantic, ideally we are not writing the same story the same way over and over again, we are delighting them with new writing. And so a lot of it is, you know, writers will come up with ideas. Sometimes I will suggest to them, but as I say, it's a writer's magazine. And so if the writer isn't excited, you can kind of tell um, that they're not hugely keen on doing this. And then, you know, then the reader suffers as a result. I mean, related to this question for Jarko in Finland, um, you mentioned double blind, which he's used in kind of storytelling training as a great example, the best of its kind. And you're also making documentaries now. Um, could you talk a bit about how the production, how do you combine the writing with kind of producing a video documentary? And what's the role of the writer there? Is it kind of separated out or are they brought into production? Um, so I think that example of, uh, that I put on screen of the Estonian soldier, um, turned Russian spy is an example of this. So we, it was an experiment. We'd never really done this um, before. And so we were trying to see what would work. So we sent this um, video producer, Daniel, with Michael Weiss. And they, they kind of conducted the interview together, but we agreed between the three of us, we got on a couple calls beforehand, but we agreed between the three of us, look, Michael is the person running the interview. Daniel and Michael can work together early on to discuss what they want to talk about. But um, Michael is kind of, uh, quote unquote, leading this because we don't want the person looking in different ways and there's a whole kind of architecture to a video interview. I mean, I, I can't claim to understand it. I've never been a video journalist, but um, there is these things that we have to be appreciative of. And then, you know, outside of the interview, Daniel was kind of free to pursue his own story. What we don't want is just a video version of this text story. Um, they're meant to complement each other. And so Daniel sort of tackled a couple other things that Michael didn't get to and Michael's, you know, relied on sort of uh, sort of historical literature in a way that Daniels didn't. And I think in that kind of case, we tried to have them complement each other. Now we don't do this with a huge number of stories because it, it is a pretty big resource push. Um, but uh, you know, in, at least in that example, that's how we played it. Okay. 
Thank you. A question from Polly Curtis. Um, and wanted to ask, she wants to ask whether the assessment of what makes an Atlantic story has changed with social media at all. So has the interpretation of timelessness bended to the appetite, bended? Is that a word? Bended to, bent to the appetites of the platforms? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's, um, it's difficult because there are some stories that just, you know, they're not timely because um, they're just big and we need to have a piece on them because there is a timeliness to them. So if, you know, the, I mean, President Trump is the classic example, right? I mean, President Trump just creates news in ways that previous presidents didn't. And we cannot be, we have to be alive to that and cover that in, in a sort of, in a way. So for example, you know, uh, from my team, when, when the president and the White House kind of said all non-European travel will be stopped because of COVID-19, um, oh, we can't just say, well, in like three weeks, we'll have a piece about what this means. Um, and so we have to think that we need, we need something because it, this is a, a moment that needs to be marked. Sometimes timeliness takes priority over the pursuit of timelessness. And it's always a balancing act, I think. Um, another example is, um, I don't know if you guys recall, but there was, uh, in, I want to say December or maybe it was late November, um, the, uh, the attack on London Bridge or the, the attempted attack on London Bridge um, that took place. Of course, that was a fairly, you know, this huge news event. Um, and so, Tom McTague, who wrote the Russia piece, um, you know, him and I got on the phone. We're not gonna do a story that says this has happened. That's really not um, what people come to the Atlantic for. They will have gone to the Guardian for that or the BBC. Um, our thinking was, okay, we have to be timely here, but we need to offer something that steps back so that at least if, they, if a reader reads that, that happened on a Friday, if a reader reads that on a Sunday or a Monday, there is still value. Uh, we can't, you know, we of course want that story to stand in a month's time, but um, in that sort of situation, we had to prioritize timeliness. So we talked about it, and you know, as luck would ha as would happen, uh, Tom was reading Robert Caro's biography of Lyndon Johnson, and um, Tom talked about how Caro writes about how power doesn't corrupt; it reveals. Um, and so we sort of he wrote a short essay about how Boris Johnson was campaigning, and this would reveal who Boris Johnson was, how he reacted to this. This, this power to uh, at the moment would, would reveal him to some extent. Um, I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I won't pretend that there is an answer um, that, oh, an Atlantic story is X. I think it's a moving target. Um, we have aspirations for an Atlantic story um, that we hope each one is incredible and lasts for years and years and years. Um, not all of them do. Uh, not all, I mean, that's the sort of cost of experimentation. Sometimes you fail or sometimes you don't quite hit the mark you want to hit. I mean, staying with this kind of how, how, how the Atlantic plays on different platforms, question of Kathy English, which is how transparent with its audiences is the Atlantic about its mission and values, especially online and mobile, where people come to it, come to the article without the full context and the full background. I mean, how do, is there kind of an about us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there is an about us page. I think like one of the things we have to be honest about is that readers, you know, a lot of them don't click past that article, right? So are we doing a good enough job about being honest? Um, is there ways where we can be honest on the page as well as in a, in a deeper about us section? I think, you know, a lot of news organizations are experimenting with this. We're trying to figure it out. I think Sky News is a great thing where when you log on to Sky, uh, Sky News stories, it, you know, one of the first things you read is this like why you can trust Sky News. Uh, that is among the first things you can click on. That's an interesting experiment in sort of building trust with the reader. Um, I think other news organizations try different things. The Washington Post has a lot of cool experiments on this um, in terms of explaining, you know, a lot of the internal journalistic jargon that we use. Oh, this is a A-head, Q-head, news analysis, memo from, all of these things are, you know, jargon. 
Um, and so we do have an about us page. All of the things that I've told you in this presentation are, you know, you can see all of them on theatlantic.com. They're not a secret. We're not trying to hide this from anybody. Um, I think that I think the the depth of that question is like, are we are we being as honest as we can be on the article page? And I think that is a constant challenge. Is how do you how do you establish trust with new readers immediately when they're you know these sort of drive-by readers who come by once? Um, I, I think it's really hard. I think we're everybody's experimenting with it. We're looking at other people's experiments. Some people are doing really cool stuff. Uh, playing with this. Um, I think we're doing some interesting stuff in terms of, you know, we're very transparent about who our writers are. Uh, it's very easy to find out more about them. Um, it's very easy to find them on other platforms, to interact with them, to email them, um, to email me. Uh, we, we try that level of transparency. Um, and, and so I think we're all trying as a journalistic community to figure that out. I'm not sure we have 100%. I'm not sure anybody has. I, don't know. I know that it doesn't answer the question, unfortunately, but I think, you know, it, it is. But it's, it's kind of high on your awareness list yeah, of when you out there, you kind of mm -hmm. think about. Thank you. Um, one other thing about attention spans. Again, talk about a lot of people finding us. Do you find that the attention span of people is getting shorter? And do you think that your kind of long read pieces have a future? And this is coming from Kohei in Japan. I mean, we uh, we have to hope that uh, we we hope that our long read pieces have a future because that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, different kind of trouble. Um, but I, in all seriousness, I, I honestly think they do. Um, I think the the if I was so there's multiple ways we can look at this. So we can look at this anecdotally. So in my own experience, when I read newspapers, when I read for news, I'm you know reading like a wire reporter. I'm reading the headline in the first graph, and beyond that, I typically don't stick around. Um, and then the stuff I do stick around for is longer, deeper, more meaningful pieces that go, you know, above and beyond what a straight ahead piece would often do. Um, then our, our numbers do seem to indicate this, um, that, you know, stories that one are timeless and really, um, really go into depth uh, do extraordinarily well. I think one of our, you know, I, I want to say um, Chartbeat, uh, and if you're not familiar with the Chartbeat, of course, tracks internal um, sort of readership. It, goes much beyond that. You can kind of see uh, how long readers stick around for uh, when they scroll down to a page and they, you know, how many of the readers have stuck around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I want to say something like in the last six or seven years, the most read article as tracked by Chartbeat, uh, three of those times has been an Atlantic article. Uh, one of those was a fantastic piece by Alex Tizon called My Family Slave. Um, some of our metrics on My Family Slave showed, you know, huge numbers of people stuck around till the end and they would stick around to the end on mobile. This was like a piece that was somewhere in the range of, I want to say eight to 10,000 words. Um, last year's piece was our MH370 piece by uh, William Langowish. Um, there, there, there are several pieces um, that The Atlantic does uh, that seem to prove the theory that if you can do a piece that um, can last beyond the moment of the news, people will read it because that has the dual effect of one, you know, being a really proud accomplishment, of course, but two, also, it kind of means that like, if you missed it on Friday, you can read it on Monday, you can read it in March, you can read it in July, um, you know, double blind. Uh, again, I'll go back to it. You can read it in 2006, you can read it in 2020, you could probably read it in 2040. That piece is that good. Um, and again, most pieces will not reach that threshold, but our ambition is for all of them to. I mean, taking that point and um, taking talk about the business model, it's really it's really brave that you're basically going for the second subscription model. You know, the idea that you're not the primary subscription because a lot of the data on kind of how what people subscribe to show you know you're lucky if they subscribe to one. So it takes real confidence to 
kind of continue with that strategy. How much of this is um, being driven within US audiences and globally? I'm just interested to know where, where are you seeing people using you as the second subscription as far as you know? So, you know, there's not a lot of data I can talk about locally on this. We sort of keep a lot of that data fairly closely held. Um, but, you know, we do see a, a good number of international subscribers, a lot of subscribers who um, want um, what we do because our, our paywall, you know, we have a metered paywall, so you can get five articles for free. Um, and beyond that, we're not a hugely expensive proposition uh, compared to a lot of other news organizations. Um, I mean, I think the, the second subscription thing, it, it is true, right? But at the same time, you know, we also have to understand, you know, the New York Times now has more subscribers than it has ever had in its history um, because it has been able to reach beyond New York. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, I subscribe to the New York Times and I have my brother, my brother subscribed to the New York Times for the past 12 years from Singapore. Um, and so these are readers of the New York Times and, you know, by extension, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the Guardian, um, all of us could not have reached previously. And so while it is true that perhaps X number of people will subscribe and the data you're right um, is very kind of convincing on that. Um, the overall size of the pie, I think, because of our ability to reach readers over the internet in a kind of more engaging way, the overall size of the pie, I hope, is slightly bigger. And so, you know, we are reaching more people than we theoretically would have in a more constrained geographic environment. So, uh, so basically the second subscription is offered, a lot of that's coming from abroad. Uh, I mean, look, I can't, like, we can't say how many precisely, but I mean, there's a good number who are coming from abroad and a good number, who, I mean, like from the United States, well, it's, it's, we are still a primarily an American magazine. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, the numbers aren't in front of me right now, but yeah, it's, it's a good number that are coming internationally. Okay. I mean, a question from Kate, a bit more of a personal one, which is you went to a Canadian school in Hong Kong, your parents are Indian, you work for an American magazine. So how do you think your background has influenced your editorship? And, um, and also, why, you know, aren't you, why aren't you pushing Africa more, which is Kate's standard question. Reasonable questions, all of them, uh, as always. Uh, but so I'll start with the second one first. I think like it is right that, you know, every news organization, of course, and Kate's an African correspondent for DPA and uh, obviously has a, a long held interest and in care for the, for the region. Um, there are a couple things. One is um, building up, one of the things we often think about is how do we build up habit among readers? How do we build up habit among potential subscribers? How do we build up some measure of consistency? So if you're going to cover something, uh, the one-offs don't move the needle as much. Um, so you have to be prepared to do some measure of longer-term coverage because then people will come back and think, oh, you know what? They did a good story about it like last month, last week. There will be more to come. Uh, so you have to be prepared to do a, a depth of investment uh, and a sort of a long-held view of it. Otherwise, the one-off stories, of course, while they are valuable, um, we have to think about how do we deploy finite resources in that way. Um, and so given finite resources, you know, we think that having our thematic priorities as they are now is a safer bet. Um, and then over time, we hope to build. Uh, but as I say, you know, one, the pandemic, uh, the economics of it all have uh, sort of changed. Uh, but two, we have to be honest with ourselves that there are uh, stories that we think, as I said, we have to be confident in stuff we pass on. There's stuff that we believe are, at the moment, bigger stories for our audience. Um, and then in terms of my background, I, look, I think one of the things about this is what you want to aspire to is have diverse newsrooms. Um, you want, because you want people who do not have the same background, because then they start to think, well, that's not how it worked the way I grew up, or where I grew up, or how I grew up. Uh, and that, so, 
I mean, I think, you know, it's valuable. I, I think that my particular background is valuable, but at the same time, it's only so valuable as the overall diversity of the newsroom, because if that's not the case, then the structural barrier that you're fighting is very difficult. And we were very lucky. I think that the Atlantic, um, you know, I think there's a Neiman Lab story that talks about this. Um, the Atlantic doesn't just aspire to be diverse. The Atlantic genuinely is um, very diverse when it comes particularly to gender breakdown, uh, to ethnic breakdown. I think we're improving on both counts um, every day, but you know, our national security editor is a woman, my boss is a woman and her boss is a woman. Um, we, we do gen, and so while we can talk about my background, I think the more interesting thing is how do we create that structural diversity in a newsroom? Uh, and that's something we think about a lot. Thank you. Um, question from Martin Lieber, it's a really good question. Um, he said he first came, became aware of the Atlantic through the eye-catching and disruptive launch of the sports arm in the UK last summer. Um, and you hoovered up some of the best sports writers, you know, you know who now might not be one, sure what they're doing. But um, how well do you feel the Atlantic went? And you know, have the have the have, has it brought in additional sub subscribers? Has it met expectations? Um, <laughs> I I think he's somewhat. I I don't mean to you know be offensive. I think he's confusing us with the Athletic, uh, which is a different news organization and has. Probably successful uh, subscriber model, but is, um, and I love The Athletic, but um, that's a different news organization. So I wish them all the best of luck. Thank you. Um, and then, and then the um, other thing, one from Naomi Ackerman, could you share a bit more about your story that how you became international editor and what tips you'd give to younger journalists in this particular environment, you know, really difficult changing environment. How do you stay true to your values? How do you go for the great journalism? Uh, sure. So, um, one thing I try to tell young journalists whenever I tell them how I became a journalist is journalism is such an idiosyncratic profession that you should not over-index on advice that any one person gives you because the likelihood is your path will be different. Um, and so I can tell you my story uh, and I hope that informs you, but I, I really wouldn't incur, I wouldn't say that, oh, this is exactly how you should do it. Um, I've wanted to be a journalist my entire life, uh, basically since I was 12 or 13 years old. This is all I've ever really wanted to do. Um, I have been enormously lucky that basically at various points, things have kind of broken right for me. Um, I've emailed the right people at the right times before things, you know, just before or when jobs were advertised. Um, but um, you know, I, when I started out, I did, I wanted to be a wired journalist and I wanted to work at AFP because I wanted to cover uh, the Iraq war. Um, and I knew for a fact that um, AFP covered it vigorously with security and with depth and I was very lucky um, that one, I got the chance to work at AFP, which I think is a first class news organization and I care about it very deeply. Um, and then two, I, you know, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't shy about asking for stuff to do. Um, I didn't sort of wait my turn. I didn't say that, oh, this is now when I should apply for stuff. Um, I, and I, and I took crappy jobs uh, to start out with. I didn't, sort of think, oh, my first job should be a foreign correspondent. My first job at AFP, I spent two years on the night shift uh, in London. I would clock in at eight in the morning and I would leave at four in the morning. Uh, I would clock in at eight at night and I would leave at four in the morning for two years. Um, it sucked. <laughs> and that's true of most first and early jobs in journalism, I think. Um, but then at the same time, I combined that with like, you know, I got off the night shift and six months later, I asked to go to Baghdad and AFP said yes. Um, and so I would say combining those two, a willingness to do some pretty crappy jobs and then not at, not waiting to ask for bigger stuff. Um, but again, I would really emphasize, um, I'm just one person and I'm, I'm a data point in a much faster data set. So I would be talking to a, a ton of people about this. Thank you. 
Um, just last question, which again, I think is a, a really going back to the idea of a, a writer's paper, which I'm fascinated by, and with the ability to curate our own reading list, this is from Robin Dunn. Do you think readers are following writers now more than um, sp being specifically loyal to a publication? And when you're hiring writers, how much do you look at a writer's profile and how, you know, how, how they engage online and where, in their, their general presence? That's a great question. So I, one, I definitely think that readers are engaging more with particular writers. I think you see this with like the, uh, the rise of a lot of paid for newsletters um, by individual writers, but also, you know, a bunch of people uh, who I enjoy have RSS feeds that you can follow or, you know, that they create their own curated email newsletters. Um, I think that more and more is the case. I mean, part of that is because, uh, you know, there is a greater reliance on freelance journalists who publish in a variety of outlets. So they are very good at um, rightly promoting their work and uh, sharing it with the people who matter to them uh, and building their own audience that way. Um, but two as well, I do think um, news organizations kind of understand that um, we want our writers to have a better relationship with readers and to readers to better understand writers. You know, for example, the New York Times has said this about one of the sort of successes of the daily and the podcast is a lot of their subscribers and readers have gotten to know the writers who do the journalism and kind of made that connection. And that's why it's so important to promote writers beyond just, you know, that's what we believe we are. We think that it promotes a connection and a kind of stickiness to some degree. And, you know, writers are the ones who are doing, like they're the ones who we want to be good. Um, and then too, when we're hiring, uh, yeah, this is something we look at a lot. Uh, we look at what people have written before, how diverse have their ideas been, how tight is their writing, or one of the things that, uh, how do they engage online? That's a great question. You know, one of the things the Atlantic does espouse, and you'll see this in all of our job ads, is we, we do ask that everybody who works for us has what we call a generosity of spirit, uh, where we engage in good faith, where we offer um, people the best chance to be themselves. We are taking people, um, you know, for what they say and we interpret them for it. We're not trying to imply intent. Um, is something we talk about a lot in our editing process. Does you know certain phraseology imply intent, uh, or is it taking them at face value? Um, so the spirit of generosity, we do seek this out in the people who write for us and who work who work with us all the time. Um, and you'll see this in all of our job ads as well. Thank you. I think Prashant, thank you so much for this overview. There's there's lots of other questions. I'm sorry I can't get to them, but I think, as you said, I think the Atlantic kind of holds its values on its sleeve and I think often by reading your pieces you get a very strong sense of your values and the judgments you make about which stories to cover and why. Um, thank you so much for your time and um, and we will send the links around and including the, the final link to your charity as well. Great, thank you very much, I appreciate it and thanks for everybody for tuning in and yeah drop me a note if you want to talk about this further, um, I'll do my best to respond in a timely fashion. Thank you, thanks very much everyone. Bye. Thanks and um, good beard. We've grown that <laughs> yeah. since I saw you yeah. a month ago. Yeah, yeah. It's a lockdown sort of thing. I see. Yeah. See you guys. Okay, thanks. Thanks.